Yeah, so Matthew. We'll just do a survey of Matthew a little bit over the next few weeks. And I, there was something I, I was going to speak to real quickly, I promised last week, regarding virtual communion. Yeah, um, that's really, that really shouldn't be done. Um, the pandemic has, has revealed um, a distressing situation, uh, especially with regard to the church. Um, I mentioned last week that we are creatures of habit, and now I think, sadly, we, we are learning that people who used to come to church regularly um, and who could come to church aren't because they've developed other habits, and they like these habits. And I'm not sure if we can overcome these bad habits that people have now chosen. Namely, Sunday morning is now free, whereas they used to come to church all the time. Uh, the pandemic now becomes the excuse to do different things, and they like it. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. There are certain people who, who do need to stay away from other people because they have certain conditions. You understand that, right? Okay. But the other thing, too, is the pandemic has revealed, I think, our weak understanding and our weak teaching of the church. Um, the church is about being physically present with one another, together with our Lord, physically present with one another. I mean, can you imagine, similarly, can you imagine having a marriage, a virtual marriage? Well, it might work for a while, but it won't last because there's no physical, okay? You know, in wedding sermons, lots of times I'll preach that there are two things you have to take care of in your, in your marriage, the bed and the board. The board's the kitchen table. It's where the husband and wife commune physically in the bed. Pillow talk, you know? And more than that, you know what I'm, so, I'm talking about. And then in the, at, at the board, namely at the kitchen table, where you eat and you talk with one another. It's physical. Family is physical. Marriage is physical. You can't have one if it's not physical. Similarly in the church. And this is, this is really going to be devastating, I think, for the church, because now everybody thinks that we can do church and do it virtually, communion virtually. No, no. On the one hand, we can do this in an emergency situation, but I fear this is now going to become the norm, and now people will never come back, I fear, because I can watch it online, and then they don't ever associate with, physically, the church and the head of the church. So you remember Scripture says that Jesus is the head of his body. And the problem, I think, is that people are divorcing themselves not only from the head, our Lord Jesus Christ, but they're also divorcing themselves from the body of Christ. And this is not good. And so I, you know, people can say, yeah, but Brent, the power of the word, the power of the word, the power of the word. Well, I'm not denying the power of the word. But the church is all about being physically present together. The head hooked with the body. And it's called virtual reality for a reason. It's not the real thing. Okay. So I wanted to talk about that. Now I want to do some uh, overview of Matthew. Oh, and it's interesting. Since I was in Wyoming the last couple of days, uh, the district president spoke, and he spoke to this issue, and he's right. He's exactly right. He said similar things that I've just said right here. The Iowa East district president is trying to encourage all of his congregations and all of the pastors, because some of them have not had any in-person services since March. Now, just anecdotally, one congregation that I know of here locally, they recently had in-person services, and it's devastated 
in my opinion, it's devastated their attendance because they had hardly anybody show up for the first time in nine months in in-person service. And it's heartbreaking. It's just, ah, Matthew. So I've got a study question one on Matthew there on page one. To whom is Matthew writing? What kind of people? And let's look at Matthew 1 to get started here. Matthew chapter 1. And starting at verse 1. And look at verse 1. It says, a record of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And notice, the son of David, the son of Adam. And by the way, we won't go through all these names here in the genealogy, but take note of a few in the genealogy. Uh, look at verse uh, 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Notice that name. Keep let Tattoo that on your brain. Tamar. Then skip down to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So we've heard Tamar, Rahab. Keep going. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. And now there's one other woman here that's going to be mentioned. Um, that's verse, into verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who's Solomon's mother that was Uriah's wife? That's Bathsheba. So you've got four women mentioned in our Lord's genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and not mentioned by name, Bathsheba. She's referenced as Uriah's wife, the mother of Solomon. So keep that in your brain because we're going to come back to that. I'm not sure if we'll get to it today, but maybe next week. And then if you'll just skip ahead to verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all. Notice from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, what's interesting here is Matthew, when he does his genealogy, he does three sets of 14. Remember that. Well, I, let's go ahead and spill the beans. Do you remember Matthew's occupation before he became an apostle? A what? A tax collector. This guy was a mathematician. And so as you read Matthew's gospel, you're going to see, oh yeah, Matthew, no, no duh, he would, he would note things that are mathematical, numbers, these kinds of things. Here's an example. Three sets of 14. Only a tax collector would do things like that. I wouldn't, but he would. <laughs> now, let's, let's, we're looking for clues to whom uh, Matthew writes. So again, look at verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And remember, Christ is his title. That means Messiah. The son of David. The son of Abraham. So Matthew takes the genealogy back to whom? To Abraham. Now compare Matthew's genealogy to Luke's. So go to Luke 3. <clears throat> and it begins, you know, 
Luke 3, starting at verse 23, and you'll see all those names. So you see all those names in Luke's account of the genealogy. You see all that? But then go to the end of the genealogy of Luke, which would be verse 38. Luke 3, 38. Now note how far back Luke goes with the genealogy. Matthew went back as far as who? Abraham. But Luke, in Luke 3, verse 38 says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, and when Luke confesses Jesus to be both the, the son of Adam and the son of God, Luke is confessing that Jesus is both true God and true man. Son of God, divinity, divine. Son of Adam, true man. Luke's confessing both natures, his divine and human nature. But again, you notice the observation here, the comparison. One goes back to Abraham, one goes all the way back to Adam. Why? What do you think? Why? Why would Matthew just go back to Abraham? What nationality is Abraham? He's a Hebrew. He's a Hebrew. And so Matthew was writing to most likely Hebrew Christians. Christians who've been converted. They're Hebrews or Jews. They know all about Abraham. If you're a Gentile, you don't know about Abraham. Okay? If you're not a Jew, you don't know that. But Jews would. So that's a clue to whom Matthew is writing. Now, go to Matthew 15. And the verses 2, verse 2. Now here in verse 2, Matthew is very economical with his words. He doesn't give much explanation here, which gives you a clue to whom he's writing. Matthew 15, verse 2. Let's even start at verse 1. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Very economical there. But compare that then with Mark 7, the same account. Mark 7. Go there, please. And we're going to read verses 2 to 4. We'll start at 1 and go all the way through 4. So Mark 7, verses 1 through 4. So while you're looking that up, Matthew is just, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Real simple, real economical. Now Mark 7, verses 1 through 4. The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean. And now Mark gives an explanation of what that means. Matthew didn't. But Mark gives an explanation. That is unwashed. The Pharisees, now Mark gives the explanation, see? The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And your, your Bible there might even have a footnote. Does it have a footnote? 
Some manuscripts of Mark, Mark's gospel even include pitchers, kettles, and even dining couches, like your divan at home. <laughs> My grandma used to call the couch the divan. And as a kid, I didn't know what she was talking about for years. The divan, I had no idea what that was. It was a couch, good for you. The Davenport. <laughs> okay, so comparing uh, Matthew here in this account, he's just, and they, they don't wash their hands, but Mark gives a lengthy explanation of why. Because Mark is writing to Gentile Christians. Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians. They know what this is all about, so Matthew doesn't have to explain it. Make sense? All right, let's look at another clue. Look at Matthew 23, verse 5. And those of you, you've got your, your uh, smartphones, you can do like a Google image search of what is going to be mentioned here. So you can actually see what it looks like. I'll tell you what it looks like, but do a Google image search and you'll see it. Matthew 23, <clears throat> let's even start at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now here's the point I want to get to, verse 5. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. <coughs> Anyone know what a phylactery is? <coughs> it's a box, a small box that the Hebrew Hebrew people, they'd make a box, they'd put a Bible passage in it, and they'd, they'd wear the box on their head. That's a phylactery. So you can do a Google, Google image search. Orthodox Jews still do this to this day. Okay. So phylacteries, who would know such things? Gentiles like us, we don't have a clue. We have to look it up. But if you're a Jew, if you're a Hebrew, you know exactly what that is. And Matthew doesn't have to explain it, which gives us a clue that he's writing to Hebrew or Jewish Christians. And then number four on your study sheet under question one. Again, my advice to you is this week, read through Matthew's Gospel the entire way through in one sitting if you can. It doesn't take that long. It really doesn't. But just read it through the whole time. And notice as you read Matthew, he's constantly saying that what Jesus does fulfills the Old Testament. That the prophecies, the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. Why does he do that? To show the Hebrews or the Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Bible, the Old Testament in those days. It's very important. Matthew does that more than any of the evangelists. So Hebrews would know their Old Testament. And so Matthew shows, yeah, from the Old Testament. See? Let me tell you a quick story. It was a number of years ago, probably three or four years ago, I lose track of the time, uh, took uh, some of our high school kids to a Higher Things conference in Lawrence, Kansas. And I met a young man, he was doing his vicarage, and he was a St. Louis seminarian. He had grown up in California. He was adopted and he was raised as a Jew, as a Jew. And so this young man, incredibly smart, wow, I wish I had a mind like him. Being raised as a Jew, 
He had most of the Old Testament memorized in Hebrew. Okay. Now, what was interesting is he, I forget his name. I wish, I, I wish I'd see him again. I can see his face, but I've forgotten his name. But he told me something that was very fascinating. He said, Pastor Kuhlman, he said, when I went to synagogue school and we had to memorize the Old Testament, the rabbi forbade us from memorizing Isaiah 53. Because Isaiah 53 was the prophecy of the suffering Messiah who would take the sin of the world in his body and answer for it on the cross. He, would, he was not allowed to memorize that chapter. And I asked him, I said, so why weren't you allowed? And he said, well, that's a no-brainer, Pastor Kuhn, because that was a prophecy of Christ the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled it. He didn't want anybody to believe in Jesus. That's why the rabbi wouldn't let us memorize that. So he actually read it, and he began to memorize it on his own anyway. He was disobedient to his rabbi. And eventually he, he started to connect the dots when he graduated from high school, went to college, started checking out some Christianity stuff. Then all of a sudden became, uh, became a Lutheran. Just incredible, incredible. What a wonderful story. But back to my main point. Matthew's audience, he's writing to Hebrews, Jews who know their Old Testament. So if you'd be so kind, look at the bottom of page one, where it says Matthew 1, 1 to 17. Now again, Matthew 1, 1 to 17 is the genealogy. So if you've got your Bible, have that open again. Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. Now I mentioned some things, and we're going to call those to your attention here. I'm going to read now the bottom of the page. The opening paragraph, that is of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, contains several clues to the distinctive characteristics of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Our Lord's genealogy is traced to David, one of the greatest kings of Israel, and to Abraham, the faither father of the chosen people of Israel. While the, descendant, the, the descent of Jesus in Luke, Luke 3, goes back to Adam, the head of humanity. So Matthew, the head of Israel, Luke, the head of all humanity. This clue indicates that Matthew, with his references to David and Abraham, was writing to Jewish Christians. In addition, check this out in the genealogy, which I hinted at earlier. Matthew arranges it into groups of 14 because the numerical equivalence of the Hebrew consonants in the name David add up to 14. The consonants, not the vowels, but the consonants of David. The D equals four, the V equals six, the D equals four, add it up, you get what? 14. Only a tax collector would do such a thing. Only a numbers guy who crunches numbers would do this. By the way, Matthew's not the only one who does these things in the New Testament. John does this as well. Let, just to whet your appetite so that you'll want to read the, the New Testament even more, just, just kind of do a flyby of John's gospel, like the first few chapters, and observe that John mentions a day, and then another day, and another day. But notice what he's, how he numbers the days. There's a first day, there's a second day, there's a third day, there's a fourth day, until you get to a sixth, and then other 
John, oh man, when, if, you, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down here, if you're picking up what John's throwing down, John, by giving you the account of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry, by doing it in days of six and then a, what else do you think is coming next? He is telling you that with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are now, a new creation is being done in Christ because God created the world in. Check that out. So it's just another example of how the evangelists will use numbers. And if you're not familiar with the numbers in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you don't even catch it. By the way, do you know what St. John, you know what his nick was? Nickname? St. John the Divine. Not that they, they didn't give him that nickname to, to, to say that he was God, but that St. John uh, gave divine gifts, namely our Lord Jesus Christ in, the, in his gospel and all these divine messages, that one thing I just mentioned. Okay, so I think that's fun. Let's keep going. Next page on your sheet. Page two. Now, if we didn't look at this carefully, but if you did look at this carefully, the last group of 14 actually only contains 13 names. Well, there's a reason for that. Let me continue to read on the top of page two. Because you might ask, you might have been counting. Alexander, he's a math guy. He may have been counting. He may have counted the first set, 14, second set, 14. And Alexander's way ahead of all of us. And he went to the third group and he counted, wait a minute, pastor, there's only 13. <laughs> you probably did that. Well, what's going on? Well, New Testament believers, the church, the new Israel, that's the 14. Because the, the, the church in the New Testament is called the New Israel. And I've got some Bible passages there that you can look up on your own. So there's the old Israel, there's the Israel of the Old Testament, and now with Matthew, these bunch of faithers that hang on to Jesus, that's the New Israel. I want to say something, you know, I use this terminology, faithers, trusters, and then I, I want to mention another word, moochers. The church is, is a bunch of moochers. Now, I know that you don't like that term, but I'm asking you to uh, use it in this way. Now, you don't like the term moocher because those of you, you know, Tracy, you've got a you're, you're going to have college students, but you have high school students that are in a residential high school, and sometimes they come home. But uh, just run with this, everybody. You've all experienced this in your life with kids who go off to college and come back for the weekend, right? And the college kid, he or she, all weekend does nothing. Sits in front of the TV, sits in front of the iPhone, and does nothing except what? Mooch off of mom and dad. Mom does the laundry. Mom continues to fix the meals. Dad asks him to mow the lawn. Oh, I'm busy, Dad. I don't have time. Just simply does nothing but mooch. And uh, so people in the neighborhood see that your, your college student just sits around and does nothing when he or she's home. And then they come talk to you about this child. And they say, why don't you do something about this boy or girl? Get them to do something, right? Now, run with this. The church is full of a bunch of moochers. That is to say, they simply mooch off of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. They just sit and they listen to his word. They eat and drink his body and blood. They just mooch off of him. So I hope that's a very vivid illustration of what the church is primarily. When I say the church is full of faithers, trusters, think of it now as moochers who are a bunch of do-nothings and just simply are served by the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. And so if somebody comes up to you and says, why don't you do something? 
You can say, well, the first thing I need to do is just mooch off the Lord. Now, remember, I've taught you the church is first passive, but then because she is passive and given to by the Lord, then the church becomes very active. Prayer, praise, thanksgiving, evangelism, etc. We're very active in that, see, but first it's primarily passive. You can't speak to people about Jesus unless he speaks to you first, right? You wouldn't know what to say. And by the way, you don't know how to give gifts to other people until you are first given to. Have you noticed that in families? That children who do not learn to give, it's because they've never been given anything. They haven't seen their parents be givers, self-sacrificial givers. Whether it's tithing at church or whether it's just fixing a meal for somebody else, they've never seen their parents do anything for anybody. And so what do they learn? They learn to live for themselves, you see. Well, I'm getting carried away. Look at the top of page two. The difference in the names listed by Matthew and Luke from David to Jesus has led some scholars to believe that Matthew presents Joseph's lineage while Luke gives Mary's. That's just an opinion. Nonetheless, the orderly arrangement in Matthew coincides with, would be, with which, which would be expected from whom? A numbers cruncher, as I've indicated. Next paragraph. Another unusual facet of Matthew's genealogy is the references to names of several women that I would not include personally. I wouldn't. At least three out of the four I wouldn't. We all have a family tree, don't we? And just for the sake of the discussion, I'll make a general statement and make my point. We all have a member of the family that when we have a get-together, like our, uh, our uncle, whatever his name is, our uncle Art, who's kind of like really weird, and when we have a family gathering, Uncle Art, we put him off in the corner in a closet so nobody will be bothered. <laughs> there's this, there's this uh, Mark Knopfler video uh, where he, he sings a song with his idol, his music idol, and uh, it's, in, it's, in, it's pictured in the Tennessee hillbilly parts, you know? And uh, you, there's a family like that that has their uncle that they put off in the side, you know? Okay. What's that? Cousin It, yeah, from Adam's family. Yeah, right, exactly. But my point is, is that Matthew includes these four women. I wouldn't have, and if you know their names, you know what I'm talking about. But Matthew includes them, and why is that? Let me continue to read. So he gives the reference to the names of several women because women generally were regarded by the Jews as second-rate persons. For example, if you're a woman in Jesus' day, you could not serve as a witness. Which, by the way, at the end of the Gospels, you remember, when Jesus is res resurrected from the dead, it's the women who serve as the witnesses of the resurrection. Remember, Jesus says to the women, yeah, you go tell my disciples. You do it. You be the witnesses. And so he reverses everything, stands everything on its head with regard to women in the New Testament. They can actually serve as women, or as witnesses, pardon me. There we go, that's the right page. <clears throat> The women that Matthew lists are not born Israelites. In other words, they're not Israelites by birth. And some of them had some really bad reputations. So for example, Matthew includes Tamar. What did she do? Well, she gave birth to children, not by her husband, but by her father-in-law. Now that's nasty stuff. People go to jail for that. That's Genesis 38. Rahab, what was her occupation? 
prostitute. Joshua 2. Ruth, she's not an Israelite. She's from Moab. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, what did she do? She committed adultery with King David, 2 Samuel 11. Just quick reference again, just so you get the gist of the scandal in 2 Samuel 7 with David and Bathsheba. They knew each other. David and Bathsheba knew each other because David knew Uriah. We continue to read in 2 Samuel after chapter 11. They knew each other because Uriah was one of David's bodyguards, if you will, one of David's mighty men. They knew each other. Secondly, remember David is standing on the top of the roof of his house and he sees her taking a bath and she's naked. Now, ladies, I don't know about you, but when you take a shower, you shut the bathroom door and you shut the curtain. And if anybody comes in, no matter who it is, you scream and say, get out, I'm taking a shower, right? You don't want anybody to see you. But she does it out in open, in public, as if she wants to be seen. By who? The man she knows. Well, you know what I'm saying? They want each other, that's my point. Both of them do. And they make a pretend, a pretend thing that they don't. And like, this is just serendipitous. It's not. I don't think it's not at all. So this is just scandalous that Matthew would include these women. Why would he do such a thing? Let me continue to read. So why in the world would Matthew include these women in our Lord's genealogy? Their presence in the list underlines the extent of what? God's mercy towards all classes of people and all nations. In other words, that Jesus came for sinners. Please look at Romans 5 that I have on the parentheses there. Romans 5. And we're going to look at verse 6. Romans 5, looking at verse 6, and then we'll look at a couple of the verses. I'll take a swig here while you get there. Now again, the point is, why does Matthew include these sinful women, these non-Israelites? Because Jesus has come for what kind of people? Sinners. So Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the godly. No, it says ungodly. <laughs> that is to say, Jesus didn't come to die for you until you got your act together and got your life straightened out. No, he came for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Look at verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we, after we got our act together, Christ died for us. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 10. For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. When were we reconciled to God? Was it after we, we made a deal with God and became friends with him? No. While we were enemies with God, Christ reconciled us to his, to his father through his death on the cross. That's why Paul will say that in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. So Matthew the evangelist is preaching the gospel here in our Lord's genealogy is that Jesus came to die for sinners and you're included. That's his point. So always trust Jesus, sinner. He came to die for you. 
And that brings you great joy. Sometimes it brings tears to my eyes that Jesus died for me, the sinner. He did? Yes, he did. That's the good news of the gospel. Any questions about that? All right, so let's continue on that page, page two. So even though the genealogy appears to be a dry-as-dust list of names, it gives important clues to some of Matthew's distinctive characteristics. The genealogy was, number one, written for Jewish Christians. Two, to proclaim the universal grace of God that is for all nations, both Jew and Gentile. And three, composed by an author who loved orderly arrangement. And then I want to push these characteristics some more, as we read earlier. I'm continuing to read on page two. When we compared Matthew 15 with Mark 7, we saw some things, didn't we? Matthew merely records the question of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? See, Matthew just simply assumes that his readers know the Jewish custom of washing hands before eating. So he simply references the practice. And this suggests very clearly that his readers have a Jewish background. But Mark, oh, he includes a detailed explanation of the Jewish custom because he says to Gentile Christians, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, and then he continues with the explanation as we observe. They don't eat unless they wash their hands properly. They come in from the marketplace. They don't eat unless they wash, etc., etc. And in addition, we looked up the phylactery reference in Matthew 23. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The key word here is phylacteries. Did anybody look it up while I was doing some teaching? Robin looked it up. So you saw what it is, right? Yes, it's like a little black box. Yeah, that they, that they strap around their head. It's kind of like you're a spelunker with a flashlight on yeah, your forehead. It's silly. Yeah. yeah, it looks silly, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus is referencing. Okay. So the key word is phylacteries. It refers to small leather boxes containing certain scripture passages that are worn by Jews on the forehead or on the arm during their prayers. Such a technical term would need some explanation if you were a Gentile. But Matthew's use of the word, now top of page three, without any additional elaboration, agrees with the previous evidence that he writes for Jewish Christians. The next paragraph. Another clue that Matthew writes to Jewish Christians is his frequent citation of the Old Testament. While the other evangelists do contain Old Testament quotes, Matthew cites it more. A total of 29 prophecies are in Matthew, 10 of which are particular to his gospel. And what's interesting too, is that many of Matthew's quotes are from the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, as well as the Hebrew Old Testament. And Matthew introduces these prophecies with something like these words, that it might be fulfilled. Right? Now I want to make another remark about, I had this in this sentence, Greek Old Testament, or Hebrew Old Testament. What's with that? Here's the answer. By the time that you get to our Lord's Day, you have the Old Testament in Hebrew, and you have the Old Testament in Greek. Why is that? Here's why. Remember 
that Israel was taken in captivity by the Babylonians and many of the Jews were taken to Babylon, which would be today modern-day Iraq and Iran. Then the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire and the Jews were still there. But at the end of the Persian, towards the end of the Persian exile, Cyrus, the Persian king, told the Hebrews that were in this kingdom now that had been conquered, the Babylonian kingdom conquered by the Persians. So you got guys like Darius, Xerxes, etc. Cyrus then said, the Persian, all right, you Jews, you go back to your homeland and rebuild your temple. Go ahead. Most of them didn't go back. They stayed because they had families and homes now in Persia, which was former Babylon. Okay. So they stayed put, but a lot, but some did go back to Israel, and they did rebuild the temple. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah for that. And then after the Persians came who? What's the next big kingdom after the Persians? Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered the entire Mediterranean world. He got as far as India, in fact. And then when Alexander the Great died, I think it was like 333, double check me on that, 333 BC, Alexander the Great's kingdom was split into four parts. Now, as a result of all of these kingdoms coming and going, you had Jews that were scattered all over the world, including not just Babylon, Persia, but even as far as Egypt, along the Nile River Delta. Now, because of Alexander the Great, the entire Mediterranean world was forced to learn a certain language. What language do you think? Greek, because Alexander the Great was from Macedonia, he was from Greece. So Alexander the Great wanted to Greek the entire Mediterranean world, and one of the ways you do that is you use one universal language, and that was Greek. So whether you lived in Egypt, that part of Africa, or spreading further, be west in Africa, or whether you went east as far as Persia and India, and north, Greek was the language. So if you're a Hebrew, and you lived in Egypt, you were taught Greek as well as Hebrew. And so imagine, you're a family and you have children, and then you become grandparents. Well, eventually, your children and grandchildren, they don't read Hebrew anymore. Why? Because Greek is the language that everybody speaks. And so they've learned Greek. So if you're going to teach them the scriptures, you'd better translate the Hebrew into Greek. You know all about this. Trinity Lutheran Murdoch, when we first got started, I was here, what, 10 years after it got started? Yeah, right. It was all German. And then eventually it switched from German to... Why? Because the kids and the grandkids couldn't speak German anymore. And we ain't coming to church if it's going to be in German. See the point? And so Matthew, when, sometimes when he quotes from the Old Testament, sometimes it's from the Hebrew Old Testament, and sometimes it's from the Greek Old Testament. So that's the point there. I hope that made sense. So when I was at seminary, when we would study Matthew, and we'd, we'd sit, Horace Hummel, who I think is still alive, Horace Hummel is the uncle of, of uh, Jeff Neatfeld. Remember the Neatfelds? Jeff and Tony Neatfeld? And so, by the way, so I wasn't here very long, maybe a year or two, and I, I'd gotten to the lectern, and I read the Old Testament reading, and I looked up, and there was Horace Hummel, one of my professors, sitting there, and I about panicked. <laughs> is that really him? Yeah, it is. Well, you know, he always taught us, and he would teach us these things, and he would show us these examples in Matthew's Gospel. Any questions what we've done so far this morning?
right, that's a good place to stop. So let's, let's pray the Lord's Prayer.